Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, welcome, everyone. How y'all doing? Good. Um, If it's your first time joining us, welcome. As Joseph said, we're a new community of faith that believes no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. And those aren't just words for us. We deeply, deeply um, try to embody these beliefs to create a space where you're safe to come and ask questions. You're safe to come and doubt. You're safe and come to be exactly what you are today. And we're going to turn our faces collectively to the story of God who culminates in Jesus because we found that that story is not only the most beautiful story we've ever heard, but it's also true. Um, And so thanks for being here. If you are joining us for the first time, um, we are in the middle of a series called The Paradigm. And what we've been doing is we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. Exodus, the second book of the Bible. Um, And we've been sort of making the claim that within Exodus, it is kind of the meta-narrative of the world. That Exodus is the one story that no matter who you are, Uh, No matter where you live or what time you live, you can look at this story and you can locate yourselves. And especially in this story, the Exodus, which is 40 chapters long, um, it's kind of writ small what the gospel is writ large. It is the paradigm for how God interacts with his world. And we're coming up on the end, which is kind of sad. At least I thought it was sad. No one groaned last week, but you know, that's all right. I thought it was very sad. I'm loving this series. Uh, We're coming up on the end. Today we're in chapter 33 and 34. I know we might have some first-timers here who are supporting uh, the family. So to give you a brief, brief, shallow look back on what we've covered so far. The Exodus opens, chapter 1 through 15, with Israel, who who will become God's chosen people, a light to the nations. But they're in slavery in Egypt. They've grown really big, and Egypt has enslaved them. And so they're groaning out under their captivity and they're asking for God to redeem them. And then God comes to a guy named Moses. And he's got his own backstory, which is really interesting. But basically he calls Moses and he says, go, go to my people. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that they may worship me. So chapter 1 through 15 is the classic Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments. Um, It's the plagues being given. It's all of that, right? Um, So God inflicts Egypt with plagues and eventually... Uh, Pharaoh lets Israel go. And so they, they cross through, they, uh, they leave Egypt, they enter into the desert, they cross across the Red Sea, um, which sort of divides as they walk through on dry ground. As Egypt tries to pursue, they're drowned. And so at the end of chapter 15, there's no going back for Israel. They have passed the point of no return. They are, they are thoroughly God's people. They've been adopted into his family. Chapter 16 through 19 sort of recounts the first stumbling steps of Israel, right? They are learning who this God is, who they haven't seen for 400 years. Um, They're a free people now. What does that mean to be part of this family? They've been adopted by a good father into their family, into his family. What does that mean? And so chapter 16 through 19 talks about the first stumbling steps. And then we arrive at Mount Sinai, a very important mountain in chapter 19. And from that point, from chapter 19 until chapter 32, God does a lot of talking, really. God gives Moses, the mediator, who's sort of the connection point between God and Israel, he gives Moses 
a bunch of different instructions. So first he gives them the Ten Commandments, and he gives them the law. And law is probably a poor translation for us. Don't think less, lo- think less law, think more philosophy. He gives them a way of life. He says, hey, I've adopted you into my family. You are saved. You are with me forever. But since you're going to be part of my family, you're going to carry the family name. This is how I live. This is the best way to live. And so he gives them a way of life. We say he gives them his own face, so to speak. He reveals his face to them. And in chapter 25 through 31, uh, he gives these very long, tedious instructions about how to build the tabernacle. Now, for those of us who don't know the tabernacle, I just think like a circus tent, like Barnum and Bailey, without all the, you know, exploitation of animals and stuff, but just like circus tent, all right? Um, so it's, it's a portable home. It's a portable home for God. So right now, the connection point, this is important, the connection point between Israel and God is Moses, a person, the mediator. But he just gave them instructions to build a tabernacle, a portable home. So wherever Israel goes, it's kind of like the institutionalized mediator. This will be the new connection point among the people Israel where God will meet with his people. All right? And so the priests are kind of like institutionalized Moses, right? Their job is to bring the sacrifices before God. So that's chapter 25 through 31, the tabernacle the portable home of God. And then last week we talked about chapter 32, which is this really strange and scary story where Israel uh, grows afraid and embarrassed and they build a golden calf. Seemingly they very quickly forget about who their God is and what's just happened over the last 31 chapters. And they build a golden calf and they, they bring sacrifices to the golden calf and they worship this golden calf and they engage in um, just wanton revelry. And God gets angry, and Moses comes down, and he sort of throws the tablets down, and 3,000 end up dying on that day, and God sends a plague. Um, And this is where we pick up the story today, in chapter 33. (laughs) So I'm glad you're here. Um, The way I like to think of how chapter 32 ends and chapter 33 ends is kind of like... if, if a battle happened, right? And then the next morning, the sun rising in the next morning, and there's like this eerie dust, you know, and there's quiet, and there's just deep, deep pain all the way around. Blood has been spilled. Um, everyone's in pain. God, Moses, Israel, they can't take back what they've done. There's been a big fight, and it's just quiet. So here's where we pick up our story, chapter 33. This is how it reads. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying I will give it to your descendants. I'm gonna send an angel before you and I'm gonna drive out Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not gonna go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. And when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, I'll decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. Now it's dangerous to psychoanalyze or offer inflection uh, to any of the characters in Scripture, 
but I'm going to do that. And the reason why, just tentatively, is because um, if you sort of get a collective sample of, of all the instances of God in Scripture, you can sort of start to understand someone's character, right? That makes sense. The more time you spend with someone, the more you might understand what they're feeling or thinking in this moment. And when I read this passage, I really sort of get this sense of, of a just tired God. He's wearied. He's hurt. He's not angry anymore. It's kind of like uh, we were, Anna and I were babysitting this past week, and we watched Beauty and the Beast. And uh, it's, it's the scene in Beauty and the Beast where Beast discovers he loves Belle, right? And he lets her go because of love. And he's just like, he's just hurt. He's tired, but he knows love has to let her go. That's kind of what I think is going on. God realizes that it's just not working. His people are too stiff-necked. It's just not working. As much as he's trying, it's not happening. But he sticks to his promises, so he tells Moses, you know, go, the land I swore to your ancestors, go. And I'm going to send an angel, but I'm not going to go myself. See, up until this point, he's been coming himself. He's going, not anymore. It's just not working. As Peter ends, writes, by saying, go ahead, but you're going without me. The events of the previous 32 chapters are threatening to come undone. And why won't he go? Because they're stiff-necked. He would consume them on the way. Now, we're tempted to gloss over this, but we can't. This is the story being told. It's as if God is saying, look, if I'm fully myself and you're fully yourself, I will break you. It's almost like, uh, you know, I'm sure you might have been in a situation before. You have friends, um, two people who really are trying to make it work in a relationship. And they're good people and they love one another and they're trying. But they're just so fundamentally different. It's just not working out. And so they decide in pain and in tears, amicably, we seem to go our separate ways or we want different things. That's kind of what God is doing here. He's not punishing Israel. He's saying, we're just so different. You're so stiff-necked. Love would necessitate that I don't go with you because I'll break you. So Israelites strip themselves of their jewelry and they mourn because we don't know what's about to happen. The story continues. Now Moses... He used to take a tent and he pitched it outside the camp, some distance away. He called it the tent of meeting. <laughs> Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Now, this is important. We just read about the directions God gave Israel to build a tabernacle, to build his home, his portable home. And the tabernacle is supposed to be among the camp, in the camp, among his people. Those plans are on hold. God's like, I don't know about this. But Moses seizes the initiative and he sets up his own tent outside the camp. Some distance away is what it reads. God is not among his people right now. God is only with Moses, the mediator. The connection point between God and his people is no longer among the people. It's outside the camp. Guys, this story is hanging on by a thread. And you should be deeply uncomfortable 
when you hear this. I know I am. The question is, where is this God of mercy? Where is this God of love who constantly forgives? Seemingly not here. Seemingly he's like, it's not working. Go your own way, people. Do what you want to do. I'm trying to help, but you're, you don't want it. Moses is the tenuous thread that is keeping this story together. And God obliges Moses. So when he sets up his own tent, the tent of meeting, a distance away from the camp, God shows up and meets with him there. The story continues. Here's their conversation. Moses said to the Lord, look, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you found favor with me. Well, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember, this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face you will not see. Friends, this is an astonishing conversation. It opens, and you might not um, see this in the English translation, but the first word Moses says to God is ra'ah, which means basically look. It's very irreverent. He's saying, look you, look. It's kind of like, y'all remember that video a while back of uh, the little kid talking to his mom, calling her Linda? He's like, Linda, Linda, listen, listen, listen. Y'all remember that? And she tried to, no, Linda, you're not listening. Listen. In a sense, that's what Moses is doing. He's like, God, listen, listen, look, look, look you, look. He's not being reverent. He's not coming with these niceties, these pleasantries, these religious jargon of, oh, Lord of heaven and earth or whatever. He's like, look. You told me to bring up this people. Moses begins by issuing a challenge. He goes, I don't know if you remember, but I was a happy shepherd in Midian. You came to me and you told me to lead this people out. You started writing this story. You're not getting out of it this quick. You said you're pleased with me and know me by name. Uh, you might, if you're part of the community, you've heard me say this before. One of my professors in seminary, He said, the greatest act of faith is to remember, which I love that. The greatest act of faith is to remember. You look throughout the story of God. What are the defining moments in Israel's history? It's the Passover meal, where they share a meal, and what do they do? They remember what God did for them when he brought them out of Egypt. For us, as Jesus followers, what is one of the greatest moments that binds us together? This table. At this table, Jesus gave to his disciples and said, eat this, drink this, do it in remembrance of me. The greatest 
act of faith, what binds us together as a community is remembering what God has done. But what is Moses doing? He's flipping it. God's always been telling Israel to remember. Moses is saying, now God, I want you to remember. Look, remember. The mediator is asking God to do what God has constantly asked Israel to do. And then God answers. He says, all right, <laughs> my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Well, here's the thing about that phrase. In the Hebrew, it's second person singular. So God's saying, look, I'm gonna go with you, Moses, alone. I'm not going with them. I'm gonna go with you and I'm gonna give you rest. But Moses pushes back. He says, that's not good enough. No, no, no. If your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us from here. How else will the rest of the nations know that you are God and we are your people? You must go with us, not just me, and don't just send an angel. No, remember the story. You called me, you got us into this, you made promises to Abraham, I'm not letting you off the hook. This is a shocking exchange, guys. A human has the edge arguing with God on the basis of what God has said and done. He's not arguing on his own merit. He's arguing on God's own name and what God's done in the past. Remember this. Remember when you said this. Remember when you did this. Now keep doing it. The mediator is just acting in a way that we, we don't see humans act toward God. And then God finally concedes. He remembers, says, all right, I will go with you. You, plural, I will go with the people. Why? Because I'm pleased with you, Moses. And I know you by name. God says, I'm gonna go with the people, but not for their sakes, for your sake, Moses, for your sake. Uh, there's a scene in The Sandlot, which was like one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid. And um, basically this guy is dating um, uh, a woman, a single mom, and uh, the kid comes up to this guy and he asks him to go out and play catch. But he's, uh, uh, he's doing work. You might remember this scene. And he's like, ah, I'm sorry, buddy, I want to, but I had a lot of work to do. But then his mom comes in the room. It's like, um, I forget his name, like Hank or something. Like, Hank, don't you, don't you think you could take an hour and go play catch with him? And suddenly he found the time. <laughs> he's like, Sure, yeah, I could take an hour. What's going on? He's saying, no, no, not for the kid's sake, unfortunately, not playing catch, but for your sake, his mother, who I'm trying to, to date and who I want to please, I'll play catch with this kid. That's kind of what's going on. Moses is saying, fine, you're asking me to go with this people. I'll go with this people, but not for their sakes, for yours. And you think, wow, Moses, you just won the day. This is absolutely astonishing. He's not done. He's not done. The boldness of this guy, what does he say next? He goes, now show me your glory. He's like, no, no, no. The promise is not enough because we're not gonna get in a situation where you can go back on it again. No, bind it, ratify this. Make it an eternal promise that everyone, all of Israel going forward, they will always know that you will go with us. Show me your glory glory. And God says, okay, I will cause all my goodness to pass by you and I will proclaim to you my name. I will hide you in a rock because you can't see my face or you'll die. But you'll see my back, but not my face. 
So the Lord tells Moses, chisel two new stone tablets. Remember the first ones that he was given on the mount. He destroyed when he came down um, after uh, the golden calf. So he says, chisel two new ones, and we're going to reestablish the covenant. Come up early in the morning. Let nothing and no one be there. That's really interesting. Generally in the past, when Moses has ascended Mount Sinai, he's brought some elders with him, and they've stayed about midway on the mountain, and he's gone to the top. But there have been elders on the mountain. Not this time. God makes it clear. I want no one else on the mountain. Not even, what he says, not even the flocks and herds who graze in front of the mountain. No one, not even the animals can touch this mountain this time. It's between you and me. Dias imano. Did I say that right, Dave? Is that right? Okay. <laughs> it's between you and me. And so in the stillness of the early morning, Moses ascends, and he waits. And then God comes down and meets with him. And he hides Moses in a cleft in the rock. And he comes down, and I, I love this. God's presence is announced with a poem, with a song. I love that personally, that music might be at the deepest heart of who God is. And he announces his presence, and we read, Moses bows down to the ground and worshiped. And Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. If I have found favor with you, God, go with us. And then God restates the covenant. He reestablishes it. So all the commandments and the decrees, the philosophy that will, that will sort of constitute this people Israel for thousands of years, and Moses transcribes them. And then we read he comes down after 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking, and he's carrying the two new tablets, and his face is shining, is what the story says. The face is so radiant that Aaron and the other Israelites can't look at him. He's different. Something's changed. And so Moses has to put a veil over his face. So whenever he talks to the Israelites, he has this veil. But when he goes up the mountain and talks to God, he removes the veil and talks like a friend. So brief recap, we just went through two chapters. God is angry and tired and done. But the mediator doesn't give up hope. The mediator takes initiative. And he sets up a tent outside the camp while the tabernacle is on hold and he meets with God outside the camp because God can't be among his people right now. And the mediator in their conversation demands that God remember what he's done, rem demands that God remember the story he's been writing. And God concedes and says, all right, I find favor with you, not them, but you, I'll go. And the mediator says, no, no, that's not enough. One more step, prove this, ratify it. Show me your glory. And God does. So the covenant is reestablished. Moses has saved the day, and he's come back down, and the story's back on, so to speak, because of Moses. Now, how is this the paradigm? That's the claim we're making in this, right? That the story of Exodus is actually our story. How is this the paradigm? Because it's both in this terrifying and astonishing section of the story. Now, in order to answer that, we've got to go one chapter back to the end of chapter 32. And this was right after... Israel made the golden calf, and Moses came down and was angry. And Moses is beginning the conversation. He's attempting to get God to forgive his people. And this is what it says. 
The next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I'm going to go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive them. But if not, well, then blot me out of the book you have written. The tabernacle is going to be the institutionalized mediator. It's going to be how the people bring their sacrifices to God so as to make atonement so that God can continue to be among his people. And when we say sin, I know some people might be new here. What we mean by that word, it comes from the Greek hamartano. And it simply means to fall short, to miss the mark. I, in God's original plan, I was supposed to be fueled by God himself. I'm supposed to be so full of God that I don't have time or space to be full of fear or full of violence or hatred or, or, or anything else that causes me to be less than I was created. But I fall short. We all do. We were born into a world similar to when we opened the book of Exodus that's in captivity. We're born into a world that is constantly not full of God. And so we fall short in so many ways as individuals, in terms of our systems, in terms of our social relationships, we're constantly falling short. And so the tabernacle and the institutionalized sacrifices are an attempt by God to sort of um, allow him to stay among his people so he doesn't consume them. But before that's even built, Moses attempts to make atonement for his people by what? Not by the blood of bulls and goats, by himself. He says, forgive them. But if you won't do that, God, blot me out of your book of life. If you won't forgive them, take my life in their, in their stead. Let the death of one bring life to the many. And this was before the tabernacle system is even in place in the years and years of the Israelites bringing sacrifices to the temple. He's trying to offer up his life as a sacrifice for the many. But God rejects Moses' offer. And this precipitates, you know, the conversation, the tent of meeting. Why does God reject Moses' offer? It's not because he doesn't like it. It's because Moses isn't qualified for this. It's not a suitable task. He's not suitable for the task. One, you have to be guilty, Moses. And at least in this instance, you're not guilty. And two, uh, we, we learn later on in the story that the sacrifices have to be uh, spotless. They can't have any blemishes. And you're not perfect, Moses. We remember he murdered an Egyptian earlier on in the story. And he also struck a rock in anger. He's still human and broken. So you have to be guilty, but the sacrifice has to be spotless. You don't fulfill this criteria. Moses' request was good. One can make atonement for the many, but not Moses. He's not suitable for the task. But what if, and here's my question for all of us, what if God wrote himself into the story? When we gather here and we say we worship Jesus, what if thousands of years later, God, the author of this grand story, wrote himself into it. He humbled himself and he came in the form of flesh, of a servant. Well, then he's born into the race of the guilty. He can, he fulfills that criteria. 
But what about the whole thing? You're not unblemished. Well, we learn that Jesus is not only fully human, but he's also fully God. And therefore, he lives a life that at every step is obedient and is open to God calling the shots and is looking to worship. So Jesus of Nazareth, he fulfills both criteria of he's suitable for this task. Because he's fully human, he's part of the guilty race. And because he's fully God, he has no spots. He lived the perfect life. And then we're told that Jesus was crucified by the powers, by the Roman powers and by the Jewish powers. That's just a shorthand of saying by us. We killed the character of God himself who was written into the story. But where did he die? I don't know if you remember this. When he was crucified, he wasn't crucified within Jerusalem. He was crucified outside the city gates. They took him outside the city gates. Jesus died outside the camp, you might say. And in that death, in that death, the one who had no sin, but the one who was fully human, he entered the tent of meeting and he started debating with God to save his people. And the father says, I can't go with this people. But the son says, no, 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 you're pleased with me. We've been writing this story since the dawn of creation. We knew where this story was going and we knew I'm the only one who could pay this price. You're pleased with me, so go with us. Remember, remember the world that we so love that we came, that I came. And then the father concedes and says, okay, I will accept your sacrifice. You're worthy to do it. You're suitable for it. I will accept your sacrifice because I'm pleased with you. Not them, not me. I'm pleased with you, so I'll go with them. And then Jesus says, ratify your decision. Do something more. Show me your glory. It's not enough for you to promise. I want you to make it eternally binding so the world knows going forward that their God, their creator is not angry with them, but has come to pursue them, to love them, to be in relationship, ratify it. And on the stillness of Saturday, Jesus was dead in the tomb. And on Sunday morning, the Sabbath, the Lord proclaimed his name and resurrected Jesus to life, never to die again, never to be subject to the forces of sin and death again. And then Jesus descends the mountain and he's different. I don't know if you remember the stories, but we're constantly told by the disciples don't recognize him. They do, but they don't. Like he's, he's human and he eats, but he also passes through locked doors. And so there's a radiance about him and he shows himself to the 12 and then to 500 others and then to Paul with a radiance that confuses and scares and transfixes us. And as Moses is told to rewrite the covenant on the new stone tablets, Jesus approaches his disciples and he goes, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have overcome everything this world could throw at me. I've overcome everything evil can throw at me. And therefore, God is pleased with me. And because he's pleased with me, he's pleased with you. For as many who want to enter into this family, he's pleased with you. I am the thread. See, what's so astonishing about this story and about the paradigm, and that scares me and also gives me incredible amounts of hope, it's all about Jesus. 
It's all about him. He is the tenuous thread that holds the entire world together. Through his sacrifice, through his weakness, through his coming in the flesh, through his accepting unjust death, and by him saying, God, confirm it. Ratify you're pleased with me. And being raised to life in a transformed body. He and he alone has opened up the way for the new creation, for us. And so the invitation is there. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to feel guilty anymore. You can come, come to the waters, come to the table. There's room for you. Jesus died outside the camp, was glorified on the mountain, radiant and given all authority. And now he offers it to us. I want to invite the worship team back up. Um, and I want to offer an invitation. Because <laughs> I know some of you guys are thinking, well, I didn't come to church for this today. <laughs> I came to support my friends, my family. Well, here's the crazy thing about why I'm a Christian. And maybe this will help to know. I'm a Christian not because I find this story absolutely beautiful and compelling, which I do. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus because I find the story true. I think it's true. And what that means, if it's true, which sets this story apart from other stories, is that Christianity, the faith in Jesus, this story is not something that I add to my life as if it sort of helps me to live a better life. The whole point of the story is I can't live a better life. The whole point is even in my best efforts, I fail. The whole point is I will constantly make golden calves. I'll do it again and again and again. And the paradigm of this story is that God says, though you can't get to me, I'm going to come to you. Why? Because I love you. Because I'm pleased with my son. The story is Jesus pursuing the world and saying, I have not come to enslave. I have not come to harm. I've come to set you free for as many who want to be free. The table is set in you, just as you are. You're able to come to it. And so the invitation for you today, wherever you are on that spectrum, as we say, wherever you are on your, in your journey of faith, there's, there's room at the table. If you're here and you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, the invitation for you is to recognize once again that it doesn't come through, through your works or your strength, that God is pleased in you because Jesus is alive. And he just adores you, delights in you. And if you're here and you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, the invitation for you is to come journey with us. The invitation is to offer up with open hands and say, all right, this Jesus who I'm not sure I believe in, if you are who this crazy guy says you are, show yourself. As Moses asked him, show yourself. Just be careful what you wish for. But the message of this story is simple. He's pursuing you. He won't let you go. No matter how unworthy you think you are, no matter how set you think your life is, he's coming after you. Like even when, uh, when we originally scheduled the baby dedication, it was supposed to be next week. But then through a conflict of schedules, it got brought to this week. 
but I didn't change where we were on the paradigm. So we were going to be in this text on this Sunday regardless. I don't know. Maybe that's coincidence. Or maybe there's a great hound of heaven who wants you to come back to his table, who wants you to come home. Will you pray with me? Father, I don't know every heart in this room, but you do. I know that this story is astonishing. What kind of God is not full of pride, that doesn't ask people to worship, but says, I'm gonna come in pursuit of you? What kind of God empties himself of his power and is born into the world, doesn't just show up as a grown human, but is actually subjects himself to utter dependency by being born into the arms of parents. That's not coincidence we had baby dedication, that Jesus, the God of creation at one point was so utterly helpless and dependent on his mother and father. That's love. Love is pure vulnerability. Love is putting yourself completely into the hands of another and saying, you have all control. You are love, God, and your story is one that is loving the world back to life. And I know people here, they come with their doubts. They come with their, their anger. They come with their happiness. I ask right now, Jesus, that you would pierce hearts and reveal to them your name. And so if you're here and you want to explore what a relationship with Jesus looks like. Your prayer is simple. Just say, Jesus, show me yourself. I want to learn what it is to follow you. I want to go after you. And if you're here and you're living a life that has laid down control and you're saying, whatever this story is, there is power in it. Whoever this Jesus is, somehow he is the singular character in the entire universe. Like somehow he's the gateway. Somehow he's the answer. If that's you, I don't know what you came in with today, but our prayer is, Lord, remind us that it has nothing to do with us. Remind us we can't earn your love and we can't lose your love. Because you're alive, Jesus, you are the confirmation that the Father will not abandon the world. You are the confirmation that the new creation will go on, that it will win, that evil will be done away with, and that as many who wish to come to your table and eat entirely free of charge can come. Lord, I thank you for every single person here. Thank you for their stories. Thank you for the paths that they've walked. Thank you for the hardships they've endured. You know them better than they do. Would you just deeply reveal how much you love them? Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.